Hello and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions and robust strategies to help their companies thrive in these challenging times. We will be interviewing business leaders, owners and experts in the field of business resilience. Uh, welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Um, uh, today, I have a great pleasure of having uh, Eli Gagoris on the show today. Uh, welcome, Eli. Thank you. Thank you, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, now, Eli is all the way um, in Denver, and um, and I just want to tell you a little bit about who he is. Uh, he's the founder of the Happiness Center, uh, an organization of world-leading experts in the field of positive psychology, uh, responsible for helping thousands of individuals, uh, both personally and professionally, to achieve happiness, success, and wellness. He's also the author of two books. Uh, one we're going to talk a bit more about. Uh, one is called Seven Keys to Navigating a Crisis uh, that was launched in May and Seven Paths to Lasting Happiness. Uh, he's also a podcast host himself of the Kindness and Happiness Connection. Um, if that wasn't enough to warrant your expertise on here, <laughs> um, and the first question I always like to ask my guests really is almost, what do you love about what you do? You know, thanks for having me on your show, number one. Uh, I think what I love the most is the ability to help people and organizations really just go from just surviving to thriving. I was given a gift when I was five years old. And people say, well, how did you, you know, become, uh, you know, get into this field? You know, and, and the first half of my career, I was a clinical psychologist for 18 years in private practice. And the second half, I switched over to the corporate side and do leadership training and development and executive coaching and so on. My grandfather, whose name Elia I carry, said something very wise to me. And then he passed away. So it's the only thing I remember from him. When I was five years old, he said, my, my grandson, he said, if you can do something good for somebody else every day, you're going to have a rich and happy life. And in my little five-year-old brain, you know, that's five-year-old as a little kid, mm -hmm. it made a lot of sense. Like, do something good for somebody else every day. Be kind, be of service, uh, be thoughtful, um, and then you're going to have a, a great life. And that's what I've strived to do. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm not a perfect person, not every day. But for the most part, that's really what motivates me and, and, uh, and gets my juices flowing is to see individuals transform or organizations transform, you know, broken organizations mm -hmm. or mismanaged and see them come together in a collaborative fashion and, and create those loving cultures, those happy cultures, basically, that uh, in the end make companies not only more productive, but more profitable, you know, and, and, and so on. So that's really what, uh, that's my main motivation. It always has been. Money obviously is always good and you need money to transact and to, you know, the, it brings you some freedom, but I'm not driven by that. I'm really driven by making a difference. Wow, that's, a, that's an incredible, um... Uh, purpose and it's interesting how you obviously got struck uh, by what you told at five years old and did, did that sort of create the sort of formative approach that you got into clinical psychology and and sort of understanding behaviors and people was that I mean I don't know how did that start yeah you know it really did it started actually in middle school I mean my family moved to the United States from Greece when I was 11 years old and in, you know, I was kind of a shy young man boy and I but I noticed that both boys and girls used to tell me, start telling me their secrets. And I, I used to just listen and maybe offer some, you know, common sense advice, like nothing mm -hmm. profound or anything. And somehow 
they, they were happier. They were like, thank you so much. And, and I, long before I knew that there was an occupation called clinical psychologist, <laughs> that you actually get, I didn't even know about that. It came naturally to me to help other people, to listen to them, get to know them better, and just give them some practical tools, I guess, to, uh, and as I got older and I, and I, it, my practice expanded and so on, in essence, I'm more of an accountability coach. I get to know you, I give you the tools mm -hmm. and I'm accountable and that's it. The work is up to you. If you want to get better, I can't do the work for you. You got to do your own work, but I can hold you accountable, you know, and, uh, that's basically the, the contract that I have with my clients, both corporate and individual. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Fantastic. And obviously, you know, we are, and we're still in this time of, um, whether you call it crisis, pandemic, there's all various references. We're still in a time of flux change that's just been just, you know, uh, continuing in, on, on every level. Uh, I know here in the UK it is still continuing everywhere else. And, um, you know, you wrote a book uh, back in May, um, um, sort of all about, uh, you know, the seven keys to navigating a crisis, you know, two months after, two or three months after. It'd be interesting to understand before we go into a bit more about that book, how that sort of, obviously the pandemic potentially probably kickstarted, but I don't know, but to write a book in such a short space of time feels to me very quick. Was it already well, in, uh, in yeah, birthing it, in you? So on March 15th, beware the eyes of March, like uh, Julius Caesar, you know, yeah. <laughs> I have a very strong prompting, like a, it's like a voice from above kind of a thing, whether you call it the spirit of God or your own intuition or your personal inner wisdom, whatever you attribute to that to. Mm. I said, Ilya, you need to get this book out as quickly as you can to help people because there's a there's a tidal wave coming. Yeah, you know, and this was in March, which you know, in China it was there, but in the United States it hadn't hit yet. And I call my best friend and 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 writing partner, Konstantinos Apostolopoulos, which is a, a fine Irish name. If I no, I'm just kidding. He's Greek. <laughs> in fact, I've got him on the show in a couple of weeks' time, actually. All right, so you're a fantastic guy. And I said, you know, I'm going to start writing this book tomorrow morning. Are you in or are you out? And he goes, wow. brother, I'm in. And we spend the next 45 days, like, head down. Oh, a minute, a so, so you'd not started the book? No, it wasn't even, I, we had no plans. I had no plans to even write a book in 2020. But what happened is, as you know, all my speaking engagement, I get to speak around the world on happiness and wellness and all that stuff. Guess mm -hmm. what happened in March? Cancel, <laughs> cancel, cancel, cancel. Like, everything was gone, poof, overnight. So I, we pivoted in, in some ways. And to put this into perspective, my first book, Seven Paths to, uh, to Lasting Happiness, which became a number one bestseller on Amazon, took me three years to write. The whole idea of getting a book out in May is just insane. And yet somehow it magically happened. I mean, we worked hard and we got it out. And honestly, initially we wrote it for individuals. The, the, the thinking was, how can we help as many people across the world, because this is truly a pandemic, navigate this crisis? Mm. What happened come... In the end of June, as the economies of the world began to open up, companies and organizations and corporations are coming to us and saying, Ilya or, or Khan, we need help as our employees are coming back to work. They're traumatized from the lockdown. We, we, basically, we don't know what to do and help us to navigate this crisis. So since then, that's what we, both Khan and I have been doing is helping organizations and companies um, navigate not just this crisis. And I think it's important that this book is not just about the pandemic. Right now, we're facing four crises simultaneously, COVID-19, the mental health crisis, which since COVID began, is up an astounding close to a 1,000% of yeah. depression, anxiety, and stress-related symptomatology. Yeah. Mind you, these were not people that were 
that had those prior to the pandemic. So these are new people. In the, according to the UN, we're talking about over 1 billion people are struggling with this. What would wow. it be? Then you have the economic and financial crisis. Once again, as the economies of the world shut down, hundreds of millions of people unemployed, you know, half a billion at least underemployed, and over 2 billion people who are financially, let's say, insecure, basically not knowing where the next paycheck is going to come from. And then you add to that the racial and social strife, certainly taking place in the streets of the United States, but I think across the world too, there's a certain social upheaval, if you will. Yes, definitely. I know you're an expert in resilience, so I think you will relate to this, Julian. Most human beings can handle one or two crises because we've been through other crises before in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, They can't do four at the same time, especially when there's no end in sight. Yes. In other words, if, you know, your prime minister or in our case, Dr. Fauci, who's the most trusted person in America, came out and said, look, I promise you October 31st, this pandemic is over forever. It's never coming back. You and I would be like, man, we've like endured this for six months. We're so tired and exhausted, but I think I can go another 40 days as long as I know that it's over. The problem that we're facing is this tremendous uncertainty. Not not only is this not over, but you're looking at a second wave. I know in the UK, you're looking at some scary numbers. Yes, we are in the United States and other parts of the world, and Europe in general, India, you know, uh, and, and other parts of the world. So the second wave is upon us, and it's not going to get any better. Mm. And this is coming from an optimist. I don't want people to think uh, Ilya is like, the sky is falling. That's not my approach. It's never like that. I'm actually an optimist, and I believe we, we will overcome this. However... Drugs will come, surely, which at least will keep people alive. Yeah. And the vaccines will come, um, you know, hopefully in early 2021. But we're not out of the woods yet. That's all I'm saying. And we have, and people are suffering from what what we like to call pandemic syndrome fatigue. People mm. are tired. They yes. want their lives back. They don't, they don't want to wear masks. They, they, they want their lives back, honestly. They want to go back to work and not be afraid. So yeah, and I, I totally agree. And I think I know back in March when it all started, uh, I know I was talking to a lot of people, leaders were almost saying, oh, by the summer we'll be OK. And even then I sensed, I think this is a bit bigger than that. And I mean, now, you know, it's clearly, I mean, you, you can't foresee the next 12, 18 months, really, in terms of planning, predicting or in trying to work that through. And I guess faced with those, you know, four sort of almost, crisis in a melting pot which is it is horrific and, and the mental health piece I, I think it's going to get it's going to be almost be a tsunami of that in the next sort of few months as people start to i don't know lose the plot potentially from all the fatigue going back to work not going back to work coming working from home backwards and forwards and just feeling uncertain constantly um i guess and obviously you've written a book which is incredible within 45 days which is um quite amazing really um what sort of things are you talking to people about to try and help work this through? Because I'm not you. I'm an optimist. You know, I'm fairly rooted. I'm an in optimist reality. too, actually. That's what I'm saying. But these are facts. I mean, I'm yeah, not, yeah. I'm rooted in reality, and I, I look ahead and I have an, a sense of optimism. But I I also I guess my view on it all is um, is we can't predict the future. So we can't spend any energy on trying to predict when, how, and all that. All we can do is 
control how we respond, isn't it? That's ultimately the, the key thing. It sounds very simple. I know it's very simple, uh, but that's the only thing we can control is how we respond. And I guess, what sort of things are you talking to leaders, businesses, organizations that are trying to help them navigate these sort of really, really challenging times? So I will tell you what the top four challenges are in, in, in companies across the globe right now. The, the number one is ensuring the mental and physical well-being of our employees. That comes number one. In the past, this wouldn't even make the top 10, by the way. <laughs> physical and mental well-being of employees is the number one challenge to HR organizations. You know, Number two is maintaining employee engagement, productivity, and effectiveness. Well, obviously, that used to be number one. But you, you can't get to the employee productivity and effectiveness and uh, in employee engagement if you don't take care of number one first. Mm -hmm. their physical and mental well-being and then the third challenge of course has to do with this new work from home uh which has its own unique challenges as you know there are a lot of great things that are coming out of the pandemic because it's forcing us to uh improvise and to show flexibility um and and then the you know the fourth challenge is really adapting to the new normal and how do you facilitate change and shape culture within organizations so those are the four main challenges that the companies are, are facing right now mm. now coming back to the book the seven keys to navigating a crisis you we have to start with number one which is self-care which addresses the mental and physical well-being of well mm. and what we mean by self-care is how well are you taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually during this time? As our own stress level has, has risen, we can't maintain the previous self-care. A simple example that I will use, personal example. Before the pandemic, I used to walk three times a week for an hour, you know, mm -hmm. miles. It was a kind of a half time. I'm getting older, I need to move around. During the pandemic, now I'm walking every single day of the week, seven days a week, regardless, because I have to raise my own level of self-care to match my own personal stress levels. Interesting. So what are you doing personally that you weren't doing before to take care of yourself, which means getting adequate sleep, hydrating, obviously movement, perhaps eating a little bit healthier. That's on the physical side. And then on the mental side, you know, and one the other keys to navigating a crisis, of course, is having a positive attitude. There's so many things out of our control. The federal, local, and state government seem to change the rules of engagement on a weekly basis. We open up the economy, we close it down. Now we're shutting it down. Then we open it up again. Another lockdown. Back and forth we go. It's like watching a tennis match. So what? So I can't control what uh, Boris Johnson says or President Trump or any other leader, right? Mm. What I do control, however, is what I do with that information and my attitude towards those things. And, and that I do have control over. I have control specifically, mm. and that's something that Khan and I talk about. There's a big difference between danger and fear. Yeah. So if somebody coughs in my face, in your face, without a mask, that's dangerous. That's not a political statement. That's a factual statement. Fear, on the other hand, is not our friend. I don't want to be making decisions based on fear, not as an individual or as an organization. Mm. And I talk specifically to, I, I work with senior leaders. It's natural to overreact. You know, when your car is skidding out of control, you turn the wheel the other yes. direction. Overcompensate, yeah. Exactly. So for senior leaders and HR, you know, VPs and, and senior HR professionals, we don't want to make decisions and put in stone processes that when you're overcorrecting because that are based on fear. That's all I'm saying. 
danger, protect your employees physically and mentally and emotionally. I get that. But let's not overcorrect and destroy everything that we've built in the past. There's a fine balance between those two. Don't make decisions based on fear. I guess that's the bottom line. Yeah, because it's interesting because often it's trying to distinguish those sometimes emotions where people get excited and or anxious and fear. They're almost the sort of similar type of feelings or emotions that sort of kickstart our survival brain and start us into that mode. And, and it's trying to keep get us into that more of a thrive mindset, isn't it, where you're... Right a lot more um um what's the word um i try to think of the word um pragmatic pragmatic about things uh you're still cognitive of the situation and people's emotions but there's more pragmatism as opposed to not based on fear where you're running and i always see it as you know start being more future focused more positive rather than turning around and looking at what's going on and and almost running away from things which means you're not going to see where you're going because you're going to be back to the to the two issues and problems um so self-care is obviously high priority and even more of a high priority right now right um and i, I agree with you I, i've been doing i walk every day or run i it's interesting i, I never used to now i do it all the time mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's it's a good way and, and i i use in that a way of reflecting as well and just to process and, and i feel that's a real good processing your brain your mindset getting away from these screens we keep looking at all the time and um, by the way julian i would say try to do it without your phone I, I i'm not i'm not perfect i take my phone sometimes and do phone calls with uh, with clients but half the time i, I leave my phone at home mm-hmm. and i when i walk outside i like listen to the birds like look at the blue skies and taking the taking the wind and just feel get connected to nature Right, totally, totally. disconnect from the electronics. So I think that's that's another part of self care, by the way. And also, I don't really listen to news because news to me are everything is breaking news with the ominous sound effects <laughs> in the background and the images like bombarding us. You know, I that doesn't mean my head is in the in, in the sand. I read from sources that I trusted before the pandemic, so I'm aware of what's happening. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to expose myself to this fear mongering that's taking place. You know, across the globe, I don't buy it. I don't buy into it. So. No, it's contr- it goes back to controlling what you put in your brain. It, it's like right. uh, it's like eating, isn't it? You control what you eat and you have good nutrition. Make sure you're listening to the right news, the right source, not late at night just before you go to bed where you're going to start right. running over things, getting anxious about things, right. and, and put some context around it. And and I, I throughout, certainly when the, the early days, I was limiting myself to what I listened to. It almost started to read more as opposed to I the emotion. emotion. Right. And so I then knew what the facts were, what I needed to know, what I needed to do. And then I didn't get all into a, a frenzy. And, and even when I talked to my friends, I tried to almost keep it quite objective because it's so easy to get quite you know, subjective in the emotion. Right. Um, one of, it's interesting. One of your, I mean, you've got a whole host of seven, obviously seven key ways. And I, the interesting one I, I think is really interesting, actually, and I think it's quite a powerful one, is this is kindness. kindness. And you've put that as a, almost as a, as a strategy. Uh, how is that going to help you navigate when you're in a crisis or get through a crisis? So it, it's it's interesting you picked up on that because I've gotten the most pushback out of all the seven keys, which real quickly are self-care, awareness, flexibility, and adaptability, obviously uh, preparation and initiative, and then positive attitude. And the last one is kindness. M- most people have actually pushed back on that. And they're like, Ilya, you're asking me to help other people when I'm drowning myself. What am I, my brother's keeper? They've actually said that. These are actual words. And I'm like, no, you're not your brother's keeper. You're your sister's keeper and your neighbor's keeper and the homeless <laughs> person's keeper and everybody else's keeper because 
if you're listening to this, the sound of our voices right now, you're probably better off than 90% of the people out there. Part of the self-care is just like when you get on an airplane, what do they, they say? If the, uh, you know, the oxygen mask drops, put first before you help somebody else. Yeah. So that's why self-care comes first. And then kindness is, is the last one. But I, I feel like kindness and happiness, I'm a happiness expert. I feel those two are interconnected and inter interrelated. Happy people by nature tend to help other people just because their batteries are mostly full. On the flip side, when we perform acts of kindness and acts of service, innately, it makes us feel better and mm -hmm. makes us feel happier. So when you're too self-obsessed or whatever, get out, get outside of yourself and look around because there's somebody who could be within your the walls of your own home yeah. or your community or your extended family and friends who's really struggling. And so people say, well, how can I do that with social distancing? Which, by the way, is a completely wrong term. The, somebody said it early on and it stuck. It, and it's the wrong term. Physical distancing is- I wrong. totally agree. <laughs> yes. Social distancing, we need more, more connection now than ever because loneliness is at an epidemic proportions across the globe. People yeah. are lonely and isolated and they need to connect with other people. So how can you perform an act of kindness? And they're, all, and they're also being told to isolate. So it's almost it, become exactly. a thing. Yeah. It's not emotionally isolated. I think that's the, the, that's what we have part of the mental health crisis we're facing. Mm. You know, um, suicide hotlines are an all-time high. The calls yeah. to suicide are all-time because of that. Mm. So not emotionally isolating, connecting even more. If you get a prompting, you know, and the second key to navigating a crisis is be, listen, be aware, you know, just like I listened to that voice that said, write a book. Mm. If you get a prompting, you know what? I think I need to check in with Julian. I wonder how he's doing. Don't even ask why. Just pick up the phone or get on a Zoom call and read or text or get on FaceTime, whatever, and reach out. What is the worst thing that could happen? You might say to me, Ilya, I'm actually doing okay. Thanks for thinking of me. That's mm -hmm. the very worst thing that could happen. But That's far that. too often, when you get a prompting like that and you reach out to somebody across the globe sometimes, they're like, Man, it's amazing that you you called because I'm really struggling. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Yeah. Listen to that inner voice. Listen to your intuition. I had that happen to me with somebody who's a professor, PhD, and so on in yeah. Greece. And I called her out of the blue because I got that prompting. And this was early on in the pandemic. And she said to me, I haven't seen a human being because she, she has asthma for, for 14 days. Have you ever experienced that where you've never, not, not touched another human being? I haven't even talked to anybody for 14 days. It's funny that you should call me. And I made a commitment to her and to myself. I'm going to reach out to her every week until she got a little bit better. Wow. That's brilliant. So, that's just one example. I can give you a lot more than that. And so, it's interesting because kindness, it, it goes away from obviously clearly being self-centered because you're focusing on somebody else's needs and you're right. serving. And, and it goes back to just like your you got excited right at the very start about your passion of helping others and your purpose. And by doing that, actually, it, it's, it creates all the neurotransmitters, gets you excited, you think more positive about things. And it's not that you're looking on somebody and thinking, oh, they need my help and it lowers me. You almost just forget about that. You forget about yourself because you're going to help. And it's, and it's similar to being grateful, isn't it, when you start being grateful for things. You know, start being that I do a daily almost thinking of what I'm grateful in the morning, in the evening, and that can be small things, and that sort of kickstarting those positive illicit states really, really, really does that. So it's a similar sort of 
a process going on so neuro neurologically which you could probably tell me more than i know yeah <laughs> and you know how you that let's translate that into the corporate world and in, in organizations you know before you tell them you need to work harder because we shut down for two months and we need to hit the numbers at the end of the month or else before you have that conversation if you're a leader and anybody that has anybody reporting them even if it's one person you're a leader basically close the door or if it's through zoom you know however you communicate with with your folks mm. and don't ask how are you doing julia because most people will say i'm fine just because they don't want to talk about it i say what, what i do personally is like i close the door and i lean into the mic like how are you really doing this is between you and i really how are you doing how's your family has mm. anybody that you know or love has been affected by this or not have that personal connection conversation first before you talk about business at all because people are not going to care how much you know until they know how much you care about them yes totally yes right and now we need to practice compassion and kindness now more than ever because people are are really really struggling mm. like, i think take, people... that, take that extra step i so because i do i talk to hr professionals mm. all day long this is what i'm sharing with them this is what you need to be doing in your organization mm. believe me that extra five or ten minutes of and don't do it just to check Okay, I did my my no. Do it because you really care about that person. Exactly. Yes. And ask them the. Don't say how how you doing. Fine. Good. Okay. See ya. No, because lean in. Ask more. Mm -hmm. Dig a little deeper, and you'll discover a lot of things. Maybe they have a sick child at home, or maybe they have an elderly parent that they're concerned that they might bring, you know, COVID to their home. And you know, these are real concerns. These are not fake concerns. You know, so take the extra step. It'll be worth it in the end. It is. It's that sort of. It's that reality of being human and, and that sort of leadership that's empathetic. It's, it's interesting you asking that question. How are you? We all we all do it uh, very quickly. We go, How are you? We go, Yeah, fine. And, and we all move. <laughs> and even on a Zoom call, um, I, I remember a HR lady used the. She, she used to say, "How are you?" But what she used to do is, "How are you today, Julian?" And it it did something. I don't know what it is. It just puts up like a. A pin in you and goes no I'm really interested how are you today Ilya? how are you today and, and it just puts a real emphasis and I I've started to use that to people and it it stops them and they actually do genuinely start to share more rather than going I'm fine um it almost sort of I don't know cuts through the, sub, the subconscious of, uh, and I borrowed that because I really like that I haven't heard of that before but I think when you ask them how are you really doing today you're actually making it making it real now yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I like that approach. I think that's a great question. It just it just puts it in the now rather than just a yeah yeah I'm fine. But yeah, no, that's that's right. great. Um, so you obviously being you know wrote a book in forty five days, which is incredible, really. Um, we become very resourceful in crisis, don't we? And that's incredibly resourceful. Um, and you obviously been talking to uh, you've obviously got it published and talking to people a lot about this. Um, what? I presume you're getting really good response in terms of people, in terms of using this book and the and the sort of um, the sort of principles you've come out with from from leaders now and HR people and and organisations. Um, what what are they? How are they responding to your your insights? I, I think they're there. It, it, it's look. I, I wrote both of those books, and second one obviously with my partner Con. So I mean, he takes at least fifty percent credit, not more than that. But I wrote them from my heart, not as a PhD. I wrote it in a simple way that anybody can get something out of it. If you open up any page that you can do, they're more like how-to books. It's, yeah. a, it's truly a, a practical guide. 
one of the one of the keys to navigating a crisis that I think has resonated most with people is the one that is the flexibility one. Yeah. And you know, in it we talk about you know we use the analogy of the the oak tree and the palm tree in essence. So the oak tree, as you know, is this massive, huge, you know, tall. It's been around for a hundred years, mm. solid, immovable in essence. But during a hurricane, if there's enough rain and enough saturation of the ground and then enough wind, what happens to oak trees? They come crashing down on cars, people, homes, and so on. The palm tree, on the other hand, which is a much thinner, you know, uh, tree, bends and bends. Sometimes it bends almost parallel to the ground at the peak of the hurricane, at the peak of the storm. But when the hurricane passes or the storms of life, we want to use it that fast, yeah. what happens to the palm tree? It rises up again and survives and then ends up thriving because its roots now are actually a little deeper. So we're asking organizations and people to be palm trees, not to be oak trees, meaning that if you if you approach a problem and say, well, that's the way we've done things around here. That's how we always do things around here. You have to forget about that. Exactly. Before the pandemic is not going to work anymore. It's not no. working. I mean, no. it's, right? So you have to be flexible and adaptable and be open to trying new ways to reach your customers and trying new ways, like we talked about just now, reaching your in, internal customer, which are your employees. Um, yes. You have to do that or else you're going to be left behind. No, it's I, I like that. And it, it backs up something I heard recently where somebody said to me that, you know, don't get caught up on predicting the future, but get caught up on investing on how to be more adaptable. Right. Because um, you'll always have challenges, COVID or no COVID, there will always be challenges. And in fact, this just gives you an opportunity to be even more agile, even more flexible. Even And in fact, actually, you may do some things in a way that you've never done before, but actually maybe better than before. And it's not even maybe. I've seen people do things better now that they've done before. They're more mm. efficient. Um you know, this the whole work uh, from home, which is a whole different, we can do an entire podcast on that alone, actually. How do you recreate the workspace to be efficient and, and productive and healthy while you're balancing, you know, your family or your home situation at the same time? Because that's not an easy balance, by the way, but, but there is a way to do it. Uh, yeah. So... That's another challenge, of course. There is another challenge. Well, we could talk uh, through your book, and there's, uh, as I've wrote all down the titles of it, there's loads in there. And um, so, uh, I guess, a plug, here we go. Let's have a plug. <laughs> here we go. And where can people get? I presume Amazon and uh, Amazon. Yeah, ebook or the uh, or the actual uh, hardcover. Brilliant. And and what's the best way if people want to engage with you in terms of getting hold of you? I would probably say uh, LinkedIn is probably the the best way I. I live on LinkedIn uh, practically or, or, or the, the happinesscenter.com uh, is my one website or dreliagurgurus.com. That's more of my keynote speaker website. So uh, and you'll find my happiness programs and work-life happiness programs there as well. Brilliant. Well, I really do value you coming on today and sharing your insights from a, a book that was done in record time and also providing such great sort of insights and strategies to help people certainly right now and as, you, as we said this is going to continue and we need to equip ourselves and equip our people to help uh, get through this uh, so yeah really thank you for, for coming on Eli. can i say one last thing you know i, I sure. it, there's a I used to say there's a difference, you know, that life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. That's got a statement that I used to have. Well, guess what? This thing is not a marathon. It's an ultra marathon. <laughs> <laughs>
it's true. But even in the midst of this, I will say this, do not procrastinate your happiness. Happiness now, even in the midst of this, make take care of yourselves, help other people if mm. you can along the way, mm. and, and live a good life now because clearly what the pandemic has shown to everybody is there's no guarantee we'll be here next month or tomorrow or next year. No. So live your best life and, and do it now. Don't wait for when the kids grow up or when I'll retire or when I'll get this promotion or when. Don't wait for the wins. Live live in the present and live your best life now. That's Absolutely. my uh, my hope and my wish for everybody. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. And I like the ultramarathon. I did one last two years ago, an ultramarathon. Yes, so yes. Oh, <laughs> so you know then. Yeah, my, my wife's about to do one at Christmas time as well. So yeah, so no, it's... Wow, that's very impressive. I, I was a sprinter when I was an athlete, so I can't, I can't relate to marathon. Well, I used to be a sprinter, but I think I got slower, so I've become <laughs> a long-distance running instead. Well, I say running, it's more walking than anything else, to be honest. Right. So, yeah, yeah, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.